Would you turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21? We'll begin reading verse 22. Children ages 3 to kindergarten are welcome to head back to children's worship at this time. Revelation 21, verse 22. Remember, this is John giving a vision of the church. Uh, the angel of the Lord has told him that uh, I will show you the lamb, the bride, or the, the bride of the lamb, and he takes and shows him the new Jerusalem, showing us that the new Jerusalem is the bride of Christ. It is uh, the, the bride of the lamb. And so this is a, a picture of the church as God will make her one day. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's pray. Brother of heaven, we come to you asking for illumination, asking, O Spirit of God, that you will open up our hearts to understand your word, that we might see you more clearly and that we might indeed live our lives more in faith, trusting you at every instant. For all of this, O God, we desperately need you. We need you to move in our midst. Help us to put aside the distractions and to give our attention fully to what you are telling us today. We pray for our children and children's worship. Lord, grant them the privilege of abandoning themselves to you. We pray for the individual leading that they will do so with skill and with focus, and that their example may draw the children to walk with you. Father, watch over our time, that your name may be honored. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Values. Uh, One philosopher said that uh, values are those for which an individual will work to gain or keep. Whatever will work toward to gain or to keep. I think it's helpful to think about what are my values? What are your values? And then to ask yourself, why? Why do I have the values that I have? Why do I value whatever it may be? What do we value? Now, it's hard sometimes to articulate that it's, it's easier for us to articulate, well, here's what I should value, right? We can do that. We can make a list and say, these are the things that should be important. These are the things that I should work to gain or keep. But they're not always the case, right? We also find very frequently that, that people will assert certain values, but that's not exactly how they live their life. That doesn't seem to be consistent. I don't know if anybody remembers that old movie, Hook, right? With Robin Williams as, as a grown-up Peter Pan, um, you know, anyone that knows anything about Robin Williams says not so grown-up Peter Pan. But anyway, he was, he was great acting because he was pretending to be really uh, this grown-up. But anyway, but that's all about values, isn't it? Because he asserts so much in the beginning that isn't true of himself, things that are so important to him that isn't really important. And that's kind of like our lives. We, we find that somewhat 
consistently as, as, as we live our lives. But when you watch someone's life, that's how you know what they really value, right? If you look closely on how they live their life, you begin to see, oh, oh, this is what they're actually working to gain and keep. And you can begin to list what those may be. Um, this Advent season, our focus has been really on the second coming of Christ, not just Jesus coming as, as an infant. Uh, but the reason is, we remember, why did he come as an infant? He did not come in order to be born in a manger. He did not come in order to be worshipped by the Magi. He did not come to have the shepherds come and uh, worship before him, right? He came to redeem a people for himself. He came to perfect the church. That's why he came. And so as we're looking at this passage of the church in Revelation chapter 21, we're really seeing the culmination of Christmas. This is what the point was. And that's what we've been focusing on uh, this Advent season as John describes for us the church. In verses 22 through 27, we something, see something of the, the working out of the, the church. If you will, by this closer look at the church, we get an idea of what are the values that God has for the church. God has certain values and he's working them in the church and we see them in imperfect form now, but one day we will see them fully. And those values are described for us in these uh, few verses that we're looking at today. And I hope that as we look at them and meditate on them, that we'll all be able to embrace the values of the church so that they won't just be the values then, we'll begin to see them as the values now. And the first is that we need to value worship. Uh, probably the, the most quoted line from any John Piper book is from uh, his book, uh, Let the Nations Be Glad, The Supremacy of God in Missions. And it's, it's actually, I think, the very first paragraph uh, in the book. I, I even think it's in the introduction, frankly. Um, and, and he writes, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. You've heard me on numerous occasions point out that the one thing we do here on earth that we can't do in heaven is witness which means that's the one thing we won't have to do in heaven because we'll be focused on worshiping. And, and so worship is a value that we find that God has for his church. As you look at verse 22, he starts out, he says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. So if we're going to value worship, I think the first thing that this draws my attention to is that if we're going to worship and value worship, we must approach a person to approach a person, I know you're probably looking at that and saying, uh, yeah, how'd you get that? Okay, let me tell you. Great question. I saw no temple in it. What is the temple? The temple is an image on earth of something that is in heaven, right? It's an imperfect symbol. It's not the fullness of, of what is truly there, but it's just a shadow of that, if you will. To think of the, the temple in, in that light, think about it uh, as it's described in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. 
Probably ought to start in verse 23. Um, That'll be a little more helpful. Verse 23, Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavenly, in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. You see, what, what uh, the author to Hebrews is telling us is that just that reality that, that the temple was just an, 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 an earthly image. It was, it, was, it was to help worship. It was to promote worship. It was to teach about worship. But it wasn't the ultimate. The ultimate is the worship that happens before God, before the, the, the true and the living God. You see, it's, it's not a matter of the religious rites. It's not a matter of us getting together on the right day of the week, singing the right songs in the right order, in the right uh, seats, because we can't change those. That's not what creates worship. Worship is going to the true and the living God and having that that face-to-face relationship with Him. That's the reality. We can go through all of the rites of a Sunday morning worship service and never actually worship God, right? Right? Just like the, the Christmas Eve program will be, will be a, a Christmas program and the kids are going to do some wonderful things and the truth is going to be there. And, and we can actually worship there even though it's not technically a worship service. But you're allowed to actually worship God in that environment. Crazy thing, right? Because we see that worship isn't necessarily tied to that spot, to that place. Worship wasn't tied. It wasn't, it wasn't solely taking place in the temple. As a matter of fact, if it was, the Sabbath would be blown away in Israel, right? Because very few people could actually make it to the temple, which was in Jerusalem. How would the people in Dan ever get there, right? They had to worship where they were, recognizing that worship isn't in that that religious rite, but worship is worshiping in the face of the person who knows our heart. That's real worship. Look at he says, uh, he describes that person. He says, it's the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Frankly, as I was first working on this sermon, the uh, first draft, I had uh, uh, several points here. One point was Lord, the next point was God, the next was Almighty, next was Lamb. And I was going to exposit each of those and look at those because that's the kind of stuff that I really enjoy. And I realized if I were to do that, we'd be here probably till Saturday afternoon sometime. And I figured that wouldn't be cool. So instead, we're going to kind of shorten it up and just kind of look at what's the significance of, of that statement of the Lord and the Lamb is it speaks of a person, doesn't it? It's a person, not a person that that we think of, but a person who is. And it speaks of a face-to-face relationship with that individual. And that's what worship is, to worship him face-to-face. Once again, looking at uh, the book of Hebrews, this time from chapter 12. And starting in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion... And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. We must approach a person 
It's not the place. It's the person that matters. If we're going to value worship, and if we're going to value worship, we have to come in faith. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. For the one who comes to him must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Two things we have to believe. We have to believe that he is, that he exists, and that he is who he is, not who we want him to be. He is not the creation of our mind and our ideas and, and, and the, our values and the things that we think might be important in a God, but he is who he is. And faith is coming to him who he is. Not trying to make him into what I want him to be. Not trying to pretend that he's something other than who he is. But bowing the knee to who he actually is and worshiping that person. And in that, knowing that there is a reward in seeking him. And so let's look at this. And here we're going to break down the, the, the names just a little bit. First of all, the Lord God. He says in verse 22, For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The Lord God the Lord God. That's telling us that, that he is a being. It's not just come to any God, but it is coming to the Lord God. And the word Lord God is first used in the Bible in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, where we read, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. What's significant about that is it is the first time that it's used. In the entirety of the book of Genesis in chapter 1, there's a different word that's used. It's the Hebrew word Elohim, but it's God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God said, let there be light. God said, it is good. It's always God. It's always Elohim in Genesis 1. Here now in Genesis 2-4, it shifts. And now consistently in chapter 2, it becomes the Lord God. Lord God. Lord God. And Lord is the name of God. It's Jehovah at that point. So it's Jehovah Elohim. It's Lord God is how we translate that to begin to understand. Now what's, what's, what's the significance of that? The significance of that is when we think about Genesis chapter 1. What is Genesis chapter 1? Genesis chapter 1 is creation from the blimp perspective, right? It's the great cosmic view of God just making the heavens and the earth. That's what it is. It's this, it's this overarching view. And in that, we just see God as God. He's Elohim. He is he's the supreme one. He is the, the king. He's the great one. And he made the earth. And so we see something of the, the transcendence of God. But Genesis chapter 2 becomes a focus, if you will, a super high telephoto that comes down on God's relationship with man, right? In Genesis chapter 2, we see God breathing into his nostrils the breath of life and he becomes a living being. In Genesis chapter 2, we see God placed him in the garden. We find out that in that garden, we have these two different trees. We see God telling him, don't eat this one, but eat this one. We see God taking man, putting him to sleep after he names all the animals and taking a rib out of him and fashioning it into a woman and then bringing them together and having the first marriage ceremony. This is what Genesis chapter 2 is. And as God begins to deal with this, this intimate covenant relationship that he's entering into with man, he can't just say, God did this. He has to use his name. Jehovah God did this. The Lord God did this. So that we understand that when we read Lord God, we're understanding this is a specific God. This is a specific God who has his own name. We can't call him whatever we want. We can't make him be what we want him to be. We have to bow the knee to who he is. We have to come to that God. That God who Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to that God but through him. That's who we come to as we come to him in faith, recognizing that we are coming to the Lord God. He is real. And we come to the Lamb. The Lamb. In John 1.29, we read John the Baptist seeing Jesus and saying, Behold, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He says, that's the Lamb. Do you recognize what the Lamb does? When he calls him the Lamb, he's talking about his sacrificial role, talking about his substitutionary atonement that to John the Baptist he knew would happen, to us we know did happen. In Revelation chapter 5, we see the Lamb once again as John has been weeping because the book of life cannot be opened, that it is sealed, and no one is able to, to open it. And then he's shown the lion from the tribe of Judah is able to do it. And he says in verse uh, 6, And I saw the, between the thrones with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We see this picture of the Lamb. And who is the Lamb? The Lamb is the one who is slain. The Lamb is the one who is able to open the book of life. The Lamb is the one who gives life to everyone whose name is written in that book. That's the Lamb. He's the rewarder of those who seek him. As we come in faith, we are coming to the one who is, and we're coming to the one who rewards. How does he reward? What is that reward? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us what that is. It is the gospel. He says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. What is the reward? It's eternal salvation. As Jesus dies for our sins. And so the answer is, is we're gathered here to worship. And we want to value worship. And we want to come to him who is and is a rewarder. So we come in faith and I ask you, do you believe? This day, be certain that you believe in the lamb. That you trust the lamb that he's slain for you. So that your sins are taken away. Please put your trust in him today. We value worship. It's the first thing that the church values. And it's a value that God has for the church. And he speaks that into us. And he's building that into us. The second value is that we value truth. You ever walk into a darkened room? Those of us who are older do it every night. As we walk in a darkened room toward another room, and uh, you, 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 you kind of learn what's in that room, right? And, and you can do that in the dark a little bit, right? You can do that. If you go into a dark room, you can kind of figure out what's there. And it's not because you can see, and, and one of the things that uh, we, we did years ago is we, we did a little bit of caving, and, and I remember going into a cave, and when you get into a cave, sometimes one of the things to do is turn off all of your lights and experience what absolute darkness is. It's, it's amazing. But you know, even in that absolute darkness, you can feel around and you can, you can understand a little bit about what's there, right? I mean, it's not awesome, but you can feel around. But you add light and okay, it changes everything, right? Once you add that light, you know what's really there. You really see what is there. And I think that helps us understand the role that light plays in our lives. That light increases our awareness and understanding of truth, right? Light increases our understanding and our awareness and understanding of truth. Everything that you see in that cave with the light on was there when the light was off, wasn't it? You just weren't as aware of it or understanding it. But the light helps you become aware and to understand it a little bit better. In the Gospel of John, 
chapter 1, verse 4, we read, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Who's that him? It's the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And he goes on to point out, And in him was life. Okay, so life existed in Jesus before he became a man, right? The life that man gained, he gained from God. It was something that that Jesus had given to him. And he gave that life. And that life, the life that we experienced, that life that came in the moment that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, that life, that life that each of us gained as we were were born and, and our eyes are open and we begin to come understanding of everything, that's the life of Christ. And in that is the light of the world. That's, that's light. We begin to become aware and be able to understand what's going on. And yet some people close their eyes to that light, right? Which is the point of the rest of the passage of John chapter 1. But if we begin to understand that element of, of, of light and what it does in our life, and, and the first light is the life that God has given to us. John continues to write about that. Remember, John is also the one who wrote the book of Revelation. John writes about it in 1 John chapter 1 as he talks about the message. He said, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. No darkness. There are no shadows. Everything is understood. It become aware of, of all that can become aware of, and it's all in him. He is the one who is that light. And we need to walk in fellowship with him that we might be aware of and understand the truth. Because that's what light does. In Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You see that light has to do with truth. And it's helping us to be aware of and understand what truth is. Look at light as it's described in verses 23 through 25. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. What a beautiful picture of the light, of the truth that we have in the church. We value truth. And what does the light reveal to us? Well, it reveals to us that we can know God. Verse 23. The city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. I do want to stop and and do that which I love, which is looking at individual words for just a moment. And we're going to look at this word glory for just a moment to understand what it is that its glory illumines the city. The word that's here is doxa. It's from which we get doxology, right? So that's uh, a, a, a part of it, which is uh, glory be to the Father and to the Son, right? So, or is that the Gloria Patri? I don't know. Um, it's from which we get doxology or praise or glory. It's, it's, it's the word glory. And, and what it means, originally, the very first meaning of doxa was opinion. And it's either one's opinion of oneself or someone else's opinion of them. And what happened through, you know, we, we see how language changes. Um, and as it, as it began to advance, that's the, that's the root idea, that it began to expand to the idea of a reputation. A reputation is glory, 
right? And that's, that's primarily the opinion that other people might have of you. Um, and sometimes a reputation is accurate, right? And, and it's, it's well-earned, good or bad. But there are times in which the reputation is false, that the person isn't exactly what the reputation seems to, to lead us to conclude. But that's, that's the word doxa, to understand this. Now, as we're thinking about it, when we think uh, in particular about God, uh, we think of it as God's opinion of himself. What does God think about himself? He thinks he's pretty doggone glorious, right? right? Because he is. And what he thinks of himself is the reality. And it's that thought of himself that illumines all of the church. But I want us to, to recognize that, that the church also came from Old Testament roots, And the word glory, as it would be used in the church, as John would use it, John grew up a Jew. He's going to be thinking of it a little bit in the the Hebrew context as well. And the Hebrew word is kabod, which is translated as, as, as glory. And that means weighty, as of important. It has some, it's It's heavy. And, you know, we use that word sometimes that, you know, it's a really heavy topic, meaning it's, 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 it's really weighty. I think today we, the, 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 the word is gravitas, right? And which we think of gravity, and that's what creates weight. And I, I actually kind of like that word. I, I think that that captures something of, of the sense of, of glory, is that there is, there is a weight to it. When it's used of God, what it really means is that which makes God impressive. What makes God impressive? It's, it's like all of him. Precisely. Precisely. That's his glory. And it's so powerful that it provides light for all of the church. By God's glory, we're able to be aware of and understand the truth. He goes on to say that the glory of God has illumined it. It's the glory of God that brightens up the new Jerusalem, the church. Ephesians chapter 1 is verses 3 through 14. Uh, first off, in, in the Greek text, it's, it's one sentence, which makes it really challenging. Um, I don't know why Paul did that, but anyway, probably because he just couldn't stop, right? It, it's, just, it's just such a magnificent thought. And if you ever want to understand the Trinity, in particular, how the how the, the 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 members of the Godhead work together, um, what what we would call the economic unity of the Godhead. I know it was on the tip of your tongue, right? Um, that you look at this passage because the fir- verses three through six it talks about the work of God the Father and our salvation that He planned our salvation, and it ends with to the praise of His glory. In verses uh, uh, seven through twelve, it talks about the work of the Son and His accomplishing our salvation. It ends with to the praise of His glory. And verses thirteen and fourteen talk about the work of the Spirit in securing that salvation to it or sealing it to us, and it ends with to the praise of His glory. Okay, so that's, that's a little bit. But in verses 5 and 6, we see something really, really significant, particularly in light of what we're talking about, of his glory illumining uh, the church. Let's uh, look at verses 5 and 6. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Why did God choose us to be adopted? Why did God plan that we would be adopted? Because of his kindness, right? That's amazing. In verse 6, 
to the praise of the glory. Look at all we've talked about glory. To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. We can't imagine the immensity of grace necessary to save us nor the vastness of God's love for us. We can't even imagine it. It is so great that the glory of that will flood the church with light. It is so great that the sun becomes superfluous. It's nothing in the light that the sun can bring that the glory of God's grace brings to his church to know that grace of our God to know our God in that way to understand his love one of my favorite hymns is the love of God by Frederick Lehman and he writes in the third verse this could we with ink the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and everyone a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Amen. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Amen. That's the love of God for us. That's the love of God which is displayed in the church. That is the truth that we will know of our God. And that's the truth that we want to tell the world. Looking back at our passage, he says in verse 24, the nations will walk by its light, the light of the church, the light of the glory of the grace of God. The nations will walk by that and kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there'll be no night, its gates will never be closed. You see that you never have to close the gates because there's never any danger. Because all of the nations have come. Because the gospel has gone out to all of them. And they've all been brought in. You see, truth is not something to be kept secret. Truth is something to be declared on the rooftops. You don't take a light and hide it under a peck measure, right? We, we learned that. This little light of mine, right? Every one of us learned that song. We're going to let it shine, right? Because then that's just from that, that parable that Jesus told about the church is the light. And we don't want to hide it. We don't hide the truth, but we declare the truth. As a matter of fact, Jesus, before he left this earth, in the final message that he gave to his disciples, they wanted to know, are you bringing in the kingdom? And he says, it's not for you to worry about that. But I'll tell you what, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, that's where they lived, and in Judea, that's the, the southern uh, two tribes in all of Judah, and in Samaria, that's the northern ten tribes of Israel, and to the uttermost parts of the world. He's saying the gospel is going out everywhere. It's going out everywhere. And you're going to be my witnesses. That's why the outreach ministry of Providence is built the way that it is. If you've noticed, we give things to local ministries. We give things to national ministries. And we give things that will go to the world around us because that's the pattern that Jesus has given to us. And so that's what we want to follow because truth needs to be declared from the rooftop. We value worship, we value truth,
And then we value holiness. Look at verse 27. And nothing unclean. Let's just stop there. Nothing unclean. One day, the church will be completely, utterly, absolutely free from all sin. And that should just give us hope as we see something very different today. We see fallen pastors and the harm that comes as a pastor falls, as a pastor chooses to set aside his his position that God has placed him in and his hand being upon him and he seeks to live his own life and walks in, in sin and turns away from God and the harm that comes to the people of God and the disrepute that comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ because of it, right? But it's also when there are unrepentant members of the church, individuals in the church who choose to run after their sin instead of walk with Christ. And they refuse to turn away the warned. We recognize that within the church we find slander of one another. We find lies that are spoken as though they are truth. We find hatred of one another, compromise, and divisions even within the church. And it breaks our heart, doesn't it? It just breaks our heart because it, 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 it violates God's value for the church that we would be holy. We're told in Hebrews to pursue sanctification or holiness, apart from which no one will see the Lord. We need to value holiness. And we see in this that one day it will be there. One day there'll be no unclean thing in the church. None. We long for that day. And if I want to see that day, what I got to do is I got to start here, right? I'm not going to help the church be free from all unclean things by starting here. It's going to happen as I go here. This is why I talk about the the preacher's stance. It goes back to to lessons uh, in the book uh, Preaching with Purpose by Jay Adams, which was uh, one of the textbooks for, for homiletics that I, that I went through. And, and one of the things he says, he says, preach in the second person. He says, preach to you. He says, because you better have preached in the first person while you were preparing. You can preach to you because you preach to you. And it starts here. And it has to begin there. And you must always preach to yourself first and foremost. And so the first thing I've got to do is I've got to address my own sin and the failures in my own life. I've got to be more concerned about the log than I am about the speck. That's where it begins. Holiness is going to begin with that internal search as I address the sin inside me. He says that no one who practices abominations or lying will be there. No one who practices abomination or lying. That's a weighty thought, isn't it? I think holiness is something that we don't necessarily think about as much today. I see a lot more written about justification than I do about sanctification. Um, we, we focus on being forgiven of sin, not necessarily repenting of sin today. And the very first Christian book that I ever read was uh, Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. And uh, there aren't many books that have had a greater influence in my life and have had as weighty, from a glory perspective, Um, message to me than that and how important holiness is in our lives. Uh, Bridges writes about it um, and uh, he says this. He says, To be holy 
is to be morally blameless. It is to be separated from sin and therefore consecrated to God. I would suggest you reverse those, but that's still fine. The word signifies separation to God and the conduct befitting those so separated. Separated to God and the conduct befitting those so separated. You see, holiness is not just about stop sinning. That's not the point. Because you can, you can stop sinning and still have your heart a mess. It's about being consecrated to God. You see, God and sin are polar opposites. And you can't face north and south at the same time, right? It's one or the other. In the same way, I cannot pursue God and sin. I can't do both at the same time. I have to choose. And it's that choice to be concentrated to God and to move toward Him that is automatically going to push me away from sin. Now, part of that is I have to choose to leave the sin behind me as I choose to go to my Savior. That's a, that's a part of what I'm doing at that moment. But it's that choice to consecrate myself, to sanctify myself, to, to choose. I want to pursue God. Sanctify yourself not in the way of uh, sanctification as a doctrine, but in being set apart unto God. I have to address my sin, but I have to trust God's grace. Look at closely at verse 27. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. If we stop there... This sounds an awful lot like the best way to get into heaven is to not do abominations and lying, right? Got it. Then I'm in. As long as I'm not doing that, I'm good. But you see, when you read the rest of the verse, you see who is going to be in heaven, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book. It does not say, but only those who set aside abominations and lying, right? It isn't setting aside abominations and lying that get me into the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't get me into church. What gets me into the church is having my name written in the Lamb's book of life. And that book was written before God said, let there be light. That book was written before he even made something called space. Not outer space, but space as dimensionality. That was before he ever spoke something called time. And he wrote our names in the book of life at that point. Why did he do that? Because he has good judgment, right? He picked a good team. No. Simply for the glory of his grace. The fact that our names are written in the book of life tells us that our salvation is entirely of God. We are saved by his grace. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. For by grace you have been saved. Not by your works, which I think is verse 9, not by works, lest any man should boast. Not by works. We're not saved by our works. We can never do it. Not even by our faith are we saved. That's not even a work that we've worked up, because even that's a gift of God. We're saved by grace. But you know, it's a grace that's also powerful because it makes a difference in our lives. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, Paul says this. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. 
Paul said he worked hard. He says he worked harder than all of the rest of the apostles. Why? Because God's grace. As soon as he put forth an effort, what was he doing? He's saying, I believe that I have the grace of God to enable me to make this change, right? As soon as we begin to turn away from sin, we say, I can turn away from sin because the grace of God is a reality in my life, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to turn away from it because God's grace is here, because God's grace is powerful, because God's grace is changing me, because God's grace is enabling me to continue forward. I'm going to continue to rely on his grace because it's his grace that is going to be pulling me forward, and so that my sanctification is not a matter of me pulling me up by my bootstraps, but it's a matter of me actually trusting grace, trusting it enough that it is powerful in my life, to help me to be consecrated unto God. And that is the holiness that God alone can produce in his church. John gives us this vision of the church, of what it will be. I'm finding more and more, I want to look at that church. Because it's easy for me to look at the church the way it is today and think that's the reality and forget, no, 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 no. This is what God said is real. I can look at the church and I can be discouraged. I can be critical. I can be self-righteous, actually. That, that works really well to build my self-righteousness like that needs any help. Uh, but that's what happens. And I'm finding instead I, I want to look at this church that's described for us right here. Because in this church I see what God's values are. What is it that matters to God? What is, what is the church going to be like when everything else is done? What are we going to be? We are going to be a place that worships God, that values the truth and values holiness, right? I want to be a little of that now, don't you? Actually, I want to be a lot of that now, but I'll start with a little bit and we'll build on it. And may God help us be a church not just Providence, the church at all, but Providence, a church that we value worship, that we value truth, and that we value holiness. Let's pray. Our Father, thanks for your faithfulness, for your love. And God, I pray for Providence. I thank you for the privilege of nine years to be able to serve this congregation and to walk beside these, your people who love you, these, your saints. And God, as we move forward, we ask that your grace will work mightily in our lives, that you will build in this congregation the values of worship, truth, and holiness, and that you'll help us to exhibit those values to a watching world, and that by that exhibition, Men, women, and children will come to know you as their Savior. So let this happen for the glory of Jesus. Amen.